So how do we honor our parents? We heard a sermon on the Fifth Commandment a few weeks ago that answered that question. One of the most encouraging comments from a father is the one that God gave to his son, Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Matthew, the third chapter, Matthew 3. Has anyone ever told you that they are pleased with you, or in the vernacular, they're proud of you? There is a right kind of pride, of course, and a wrong kind of pride. But God the Father expressed expressed it this way. Remember, Jesus came to John the Baptist's baptism. They were all confessing their sins, and when uh, he was baptized, verse 16 of Matthew 3, and when Jesus was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and some of you have seen uh, photos, which I have, of, uh, of Jesus standing in the Jordan River. I mean, it's a, kind of a ridiculous picture, but I've actually seen this picture, how Jesus is standing in the Jordan River, and John the Baptist is pouring water over his head. Now, why would he get his feet wet if you're going to pour water on his head? Well, obviously, Jesus was immersed in the Jordan River. That's why he was there. He came up out of the water. He was totally immersed and came up out of the water. But here is the inspiring voice that came from heaven. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. It's verse 17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What a wonderful encouragement. Has your father or mother ever told you that you are a son or a daughter in whom you are well pleased? Well, certainly we want God, our Father, to tell us that at the end of our life and perhaps in between as well. How do we do those things that are pleasing in God's sight? God said he is well pleased. Is God pleased with you, with your life? How can you please God? And what displeases God? Is your life pleasing in God's sight? This is extremely important because it involves the whole purpose of life. Our mission and our existence depends on God. The title of the sermon is, How to Please God. Let's turn to 1 John, the third chapter, 1 John 3. When you do a search through the scriptures, you'll find there are many scriptures that talk about how we please God, and also that God delights in his children who walk in his way. 1 John 3, verse 22. Here we find one of the keys to answered prayer. Also, 1 John 5.14 also mentions that. But let's look at 1 John 3, verse 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments, God's commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. It's a whole way of life. What do we do that pleases God? What do we do that displeases God? Here's one of the benefits for pleasing God. We keep his commandments, and he answers our prayers if we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. While we're here in 1 John, you might just take a look at chapter 5, verse 14, 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. So we have to ask, of course, according to his will. I asked my wife this morning, what, uh, what are some of the benefits from pleasing God? And uh, she said, confidence. She, and here it is right here, confidence, 1 John 5, 14, that if we ask anything according to his will, we have confidence. She said one of the other benefits of pleasing God is peace of mind and also happiness and the assured promises to be in God's future glorified family. So God loves his children, but he gives special benefits when we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Let's take a look at a couple examples in the Bible of those who did please God. Turn to 1 Kings, the third chapter, 1 Kings 3. Even though he went astray in the latter part of his life, at least at this beginning of his rulership as king of Israel, he did please God. 1 Kings 3 and uh, verse 5. 1 Kings 3 verse 5. In Gibeon the Eternal appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown unto your servant David my father great mercy, according as he walked before you in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. And you have kept him from for him this great kindness, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne. And now, O eternal my God, you have made your servant king instead of David my father. But I am a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. So he was admitting his limitations. He was human. He must have had a certain degree of vanity, but he really had a realistic view of himself at this point. And your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. So what did he ask God? Verse 9, Give an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern good and bad. For who is able to judge this so great a people? So Solomon did not, did not ask for himself, as it says in verse 11, long life, riches, but you or the life of his enemies. But notice what God said in response to Solomon's request. Verse 10, And the speech pleased the eternal, and Solomon, that Solomon had asked this thing. And perhaps some of your prayers please God, and you don't know it. I think of the times when a little child came up to me one time here after service and said, uh, Mr. Ames, I really liked your sermon. And you know, that was very, very encouraging, very pleasing. And I know that other times when I've asked little children to pray for me, I know God hears their prayers. So you little children, God does hear your prayers, and it means a great deal to God, and it means a great deal to those for whom you're praying as well. But we can pray and please God by our requests. Solomon was an example of that. The speech pleased the eternal. And then, of course, God gave him wisdom. An example of the wisdom, of course, is followed in verses 16 through 28. Remember, there were two women, verse 16, uh, that were harlots. They came under the king, and the one woman said, verse 17, I and this woman dwell in one house, and I, I was delivered of a child with her in the house. 
And it came to pass the third day after I was delivered that I gave birth that this woman was delivered also. And we were together, no stranger with us, with us, save two in the house. And this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. She smothered it somehow. And she arose at midnight, took my son from beside me while your handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did not bear. So the other woman argued against that, verse 22. And so what did Solomon say? Verse 22. The one says, this is my son that lives, and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead, and my son is living. The king said, bring me a sword. And they brought the sword before the king. The king said, divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Well, that would have been shocking to, you'd think, to both women. Then spoke the woman whose living child was under the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son, and she said, O oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and no wise slay it. For the other said, Let it neither be mine or yours, but divide it. So the carnal harlot said, Oh, that's okay, just go ahead and kill her son, split it, and give me half. <laughs> but Solomon was very perceptive and realized that the response from the mother of the living child did not want her son killed. And Solomon said, verse 27, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it, for she is the mother thereof. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. So Solomon's request pleased God. Is there anyone else that you can think of that God was well pleased with? And of course, God gives us wisdom. We need to pray for it, as it says in James 1. And it gives us that wisdom from above, as it mentions in James 3, that is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to be uh, yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. That's in James 3, verses 17 through 18. I hope that you pray for wisdom, the wisdom that's from above. Turn back to Acts, the 13th chapter, Acts 13. Who else was someone who pleased God? Solomon's speech pleased the Lord. Acts 13. And here... Paul is speaking to the men of Israel and giving a history of Israel. Verse 22 of Acts 13. And when God had removed him, that is, King Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony, and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. And, of course, David was to be chosen as the ancestor of the Messiah, as it brings out the next verse, verse 23. So David was a man after God's own heart. He was wanting to do all of God's will. Let's turn to John, the 8th chapter, John 8. Who else pleased God? David obviously pleased God because he was a man after God's own heart. Well, here the Messiah himself says in John, the 8th chapter, and 
starting with verse 28. Then Jesus said unto them, speaking of his future crucifixion, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you shall know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. And God the Father is teaching us, if we want to be taught. We are the disciples, the students of Jesus Christ. And hopefully we are good students. We want to learn every day. We want to learn something new from God. As David prayed there in Psalm 25, uh, verses uh, 4 and 5, Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you do I wait all the day. For I do always those things. But notice verse 29. And he that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. But I do always those things that please him. So Jesus was in tune with the Father. He said, I always do those things that please him. Do we always do things that are pleasing to God? Well, we are human. We sin. And we have to repent of those sins. Now, are those examples, we've seen examples of those who please God, there are those who displease God. Let's turn back to uh, 1 Samuel, the 13th chapter. We already just read in Acts 13 that God removed King Saul. 1 Samuel, the 13th chapter. Why did God remove King Saul? Remember that uh, he was waiting for the prophet Samuel to come offer a sacrifice. And uh, King Saul got a little tired and uh, a little impatient. And he said, well, I guess I better do it. Well, that was a wrong guess. Not only a wrong guess, but uh, an arrogant decision. Verse 8, and so he, that is Samuel, tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, Bring hither a burnt offering to me, and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he did, and doesn't this often happen, when you make a wrong decision, and judgment may come pretty swiftly, sometimes it's delayed, but as soon as he did the wrong thing, then Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and that he might salute him. And Samuel says, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and you came not within the days appointed, that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, The Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication on the Eternal. I felt compelled. I forced myself, therefore, to offer a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Eternal, your God, which he command you. For now would the Eternal have established your kingdom upon Israel forever. And now your kingdom, verse 14, shall not continue. The Eternal has sought him a man after his own heart. So King Saul did foolishly. He reasoned. He rationalized. He didn't listen specifically to the commandments and follow the instructions. You know, it's a truism, and I've, <laughs> I've had to learn that lesson myself several times. When all else fails, follow instructions. Well, you know, there's a corollary to that, contrary. 
before it fails, follow instructions. To avoid failure, follow instructions. King Saul did not follow instructions. And the Eternal has commanded him, that is David, to be captain over his people, because you have not kept that which the Eternal commanded. Here is an example of someone who displeased God. 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, 1 Corinthians 10. Not only did King Saul displease God, but the whole nation of ancient Israel displeased God. 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, and uh, here we find the history of the Exodus. They were baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They drank of that spiritual rock. That rock was Christ, as it says in verse 4. But notice verse 5. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples. No, we need to learn from their execution, because they lusted. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day 23,000. So God was not pleased with ancient Israel. They were disobedient. They were lustful. They went after the world, and they did not become the examples and light to the world that they were commissioned to be. What else displeases God? Let's turn to the faith chapter, Hebrews 11. You've read this many times, but notice verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, we've seen examples of those who pleased God and those who have displeased God. I think all of us want to rejoice in God's gifts and in his blessings. We don't want to uh, sin. We don't want to displease God. But we need faith. And obviously, the corollary would be, with faith, we can please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And how many of us are diligently seeking him? We've heard that exhortation by Dr. Meredith here recently. We diligently seek him. It's a part of your routine. It's a part of your life. It's a part of your regimen that you pray every night before you go to bed, or you pray every morning when you get up. And some people, of course, uh, hit the ground running, as we say, in the morning. I used to when I was uh, uh, getting up and jogging at uh, 5.30 in the morning, which I jog in the evening now. But, uh, you know, I used to be up alert when I would wake up and hit the floor with my knees, roll out of bed on my knees, and immediately be alert and uh, able to pray. Uh, some of us are not able to do that now, uh, some of us as we age, and uh, have to wash our face. Some, some people have to feel they have to get a cup of coffee before they can be alert and pray. But there has to be that dedication, that commitment, that you don't let a day go without praying. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you have let a day go by without praying? I hope none of you have, because if you have, you need to repent of that. Because you've had another God before the true God, if indeed you have let a day go by without acknowledging God as God, as your Father. You want to make sure that you pray every day. 
and not only just pray every day a minute or two, but longer than. And I know that on some occasions in the past, when I had to uh, rush off to work and be there at uh, 8 o'clock, and I got up late, and I didn't have time to pray. But I still got on my knees at least a minute and asked God for protection, asked God to keep a guard at my mouth so I wouldn't say things I shouldn't say until I had a chance to pray at noon, as I had in those days that particular uh, supervision in which I was watched for four hours or so. But uh, at noon, when I had a chance to go to a closet or a private place uh, to pray, that was urgent. That was my priority. I felt let's say, unprotected to a certain degree, but I certainly had the faith because I was praying every day. But to just have that minute to pray, I knew at noon I had to really get close to God for the rest of the day. I hope that all of us realize that we have to exercise faith by diligently seeking Him, as it says here in verse 6. Turn to, uh, well, verse 5, we just see right here in the previous verse, By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. That is, temporarily, he did see death. It's appointed unto men once to die, as it says in chapter 9, verse 27 of Hebrews. So he did eventually die, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. We don't know in detail, a great deal about the life of Enoch. But if that would be all that would be said about your life in the book of Acts, yet to be written perhaps in that section, it doesn't have an amen at the end of it, if your name were to appear, wouldn't that testimony be encouraging? Wouldn't it be what you would want, that you, in your lifetime, your whole life consisted of a summary statement that he pleased God, or she pleased God. Enoch was such a man. Let's turn to Romans, the eighth chapter. There is the all-important key of attitude. How do we please God? Romans 8 and verse 5. Romans 8 and verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And we are in a world that is carnally minded. It is fleshly minded. For to be carnally minded is death, verse 6, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What a contrast. Death on the one hand and peace and life on the other. Because the carnal mind is hostile, enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And it's pretty obvious to some of us when someone has a carnal mind. Um, You obviously recognize it in the worldly workplace and business people with whom you may deal, or even in the sports world, uh, you see people are carnally minded. You see others in the religious sphere who reject God's law. They are carnally minded. Verse 8 so that then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So here's another way you displease God if you're in the flesh. Well, that was my question when I was a new member in the church and 
flew from Norfolk, Virginia to uh, Manhattan, New York for my first Passover. In those days, we kept uh, all of the days, uh, all seven days of unleavened bread with meetings every day. I stayed in the Diplomat Hotel and went down the elevator for our daily meeting. And I remember being puzzled by this verse and asking the minister there, said, well, I'm in the flesh, so how can I please God? You know, I'm, here I am, I'm in the flesh. And, of course, uh, just as a uh, another diversion, you might know that uh, at Discovery Place, Mr. Punch can tell you about the uh, body exhibition that is there ongoing right now. My wife and I saw it when it was on exhibit in uh, Tampa, Florida last year. And it just shows the internal organs of the body, the muscles, the circulatory system, the digestive system. Uh, every part of the body is exposed. And, uh, of course, it's quite a controversy. Some feel that shouldn't be done. But individuals who died gave permission to have their bodies plasterized so you could see every part of the human body. And it is an incredible design. It's an incredible uh, creation of God, and uh, some people comment, how, how is it that we can continue to live with all these, all these uh, systems? Because something could go wrong with any one of these major systems. We are in the flesh, that is physically speaking, but not spiritually speaking. The answer is in verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but if in, in the spirit, if so be, the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Well, you cannot please God if you are fleshly, carnally minded. We need to make sure we are not in the flesh, spiritually speaking. But we need to be in the spirit. It's an important key of attitude. I won't turn there, but you know Isaiah 66 and verse 2. But on this one will I look to him that is poor and a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. How do you please God? With an attitude of teachability, with an attitude of humility. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. One who wants to be taught, one who wants to follow instructions. Let's turn to another example of humility. An attitude is all important if we're going to please God. Turn back to 1 Kings, the 21st chapter, 1 Kings 21. My first study on fasting ended up with uh, this particular story, and it made quite an impression on me because uh, King Ahab was uh, the worst king uh, in up to that point in time, and of course, uh, his uh, wrong attitude was exacerbated by a wife named Jezebel. But you know the story here in uh, 1 Kings 21, Naboth had a vineyard next to King Ahab's palace in Samaria. Verse 2 of 1 Kings 21, And Ahab spoke unto Nathan and said, Give, give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give you for it a better vineyard than it, if it seems good to you, and I will give you worth of it in money. And Naboth said, The Lord forbid it that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto you. And Ahab was uh, really discouraged. He didn't get his way. It's like a little child 
that's selfish and cries because he or she doesn't get his or her way. Very selfish. And displeased because of the word which Naboth, the Jezreelites, had spoken unto him, he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. Oh, well, the solution comes along in the name of Jezebel. Verse 5, But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is your spirit so sad and you eat no bread? Well, Naboth won't give me his vineyard. So Jezebel says to him, Aren't you the governor of the kingdom of Israel? Verse 7, Now let your heart be merry, and I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So what does she do? She sets up false witnesses against Naboth, has him executed, stoned to death, so then a King Ahab can take over Naboth's property. Just totally evil and totally wrong. So Elijah the prophet comes down to him and says to uh, King Ahab, verse 19, Thus says the Eternal, Have you killed and also taken possession? In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your blood. Because he sold evil and sold himself to work evil in the sight of the Eternal. End of verse 20. And Jezebel also was guilty. In verse 23, of Jezebel also spoke the Eternal, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. So here's the one of the, the most wicked king of Israel. So find in verse 25, But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Eternal, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. <clears throat> And, of course, it goes both ways. Husbands need to have backbones that they don't give in to a carnal wife, if that may be the case, who is trying to persuade him to do something wrong. And neither should a wife, if she's converted, let her unconverted husband try to convince her to break God's commandments or to transgress. We all need backbones to stand up for what's right and not to compromise and not give in. But notice what happened. Ahab, I said, attitude is all important. So what did Ahab do after he received this pronouncement of execution for his sin? Verse 27, And it came to pass when Ahab heard these words, that he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted, and lay in sackcloth and went softly, or as it says, displaying regret even in his walk. And the word of the Eternal came to Elijah the Tishbite and said, verse 29, See you how Ahab humbles himself before me? Because he humbles himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring the evil upon his house. This was a dramatic example to me personally when I read this many years ago. Here is the wicked king of Israel who had been pronounced by the prophet to be executed for his sin. And yet he humbled himself. God saw that humility. And he was going to delay the penalty, although obviously Ahab died later on, but some of the other penalty was delayed because of Ahab's humility. Turn to Luke, the 15th chapter. Luke 15. So what pleases God? It's that 
humility. It's that attitude of repentance. It's a willingness to humble yourself, even through fasting, as in the case of King Ahab. Luke, the 15th chapter, Luke 15, we have three parables here, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, or the prodigal son as it's better known. In each of these, what is it that brings joy to heaven? The lost sheep is found. Verse 6, I say unto you, says Jesus, in verse 7, that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over ninety and nine just persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, the parable of the lost coin. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. So again, God shows us that he is pleased with a repentant attitude. And of course, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, verse 32, the father said, it was fitting that we should make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. The attitude of repentance pleases God. Let's turn to Second uh, Samuel, the twelfth chapter. Now, King David didn't justify himself like Saul did. Saul had a justification. Well, David, of course, didn't see his sin. He'd committed adultery with Bathsheba, and Nathan the prophet told him the story here in chapter twelve of. Second Samuel, about a rich man who had many flocks and herds. Verse 3, But the poor man had nothing, one little ewe lamb, which he'd brought and up and nourished and grew up together with him. There came a traveler, a rich man, and he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was to come to him. And David's anger was kindled against the man. Verse 5, And he said to Nathan, As the eternal lives, The man that has done this thing shall surely die. He was pronouncing judgment on himself. He was that man. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Verse 7, And David said, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the eternal God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And so he continues to uh, correct King David. And sometimes we don't like correction. I know one time I was being corrected by a minister, and he was doing it in a very straightforward way. He wasn't angry. And uh, after about a minute, I said to myself, okay, you know, I got it. You, you know, you don't need to go any further. But he kept going on and on. And I said, oh, hey, wait a minute. I, you know, I know I didn't say it to him. I'm just saying in my mind, I got it. You don't need to correct me further. But he just kept going on and on and on and realized, hmm, I better get it and make sure that I take this correction. But David didn't justify himself. He said in verse 13, I have sinned against the eternal. So David didn't rationalize or justify like King Saul did, as we read previously. David admitted his sin. And Nathan said unto David, The Eternal has also put away your sin 
you shall not die. The child that is born unto you shall die. And, of course, David fasted uh, seven <clears throat> days, and the child died. And, of course, as he said, uh, the child would not come back to him, but he would go to uh, the child. It's at verse 23, the famous sentence, Verse 23, when they said, well, why are you breaking your fast now that the child is dead? Verse 23, but now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Again, David, Psalm 51 of repentance said, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. This is Psalm 51, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. And that's why God has called all of us sinners. We've repented, and now can walk in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We repent of our sins. We confess our sins. God forgives us. And we walk in the spirit, that not in the, the flesh, as we read earlier in Romans, the eighth chapter. So God has brought sinners in, like us to teach us the way to salvation so that we, in turn, can teach other sinners later on. We can identify with their problems because we have experienced the same problems. That's why we're going to be priests and kings. A priest is one who under-teaches, who understands and intercedes for someone else. And in the kingdom, we will be able to talk with human beings who've had the same kind of problems, pressures, stresses, sins that we've had, and we'll be able to tell them, I know what you're talking about. I was that way too. I was an alcoholic, or I was a, a smoker, or I was a whoremonger, and I had to repent of that, and I changed. And we'll be able to help people in the kingdom. David was a man after God's own heart. He repented. Hebrews, the 13th chapter, Hebrews 13. We're talking about attitudes that please God. And a repentant attitude pleases God. Hebrews 13 and verse 15. By him, therefore, that is Christ, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with God's, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Do not forget to do good and to share, the New King James, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So you may not realize it, that when you are helping, when you're serving, when you're giving, that you're pleasing God. Of course, if it's not out of vanity or to, for self-aggrandizement or some other wrong motive, God will be well pleased from that. God is also pleased with an attitude of obedience. Turn to... Uh, Colossians 3, verse 20, Colossians 3, as we think about Father's Day tomorrow, all of us are children, 
And if our parents are deceased, we still have a heavenly father. Always have a heavenly father. Verse 20, Colossians 3. Children, obey your parents in all things. Notice the rest of the verse. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So children, when you do what your parents say, that is well-pleasing to God. Realize that God is happy that you are responding to your parents' instructions, that you want to cooperate, and you want to cooperate willingly. That's a wonderful scripture here to realize that we can please God. Let's turn back to uh, chapter 1 of Colossians and verse 10. Colossians 1. The Apostle Paul is praying for the Colossians that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, verse 9 and verse 10 of Colossians 1, that you may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That you may be fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That you walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. So we need to always think about that, that what we're doing, God knows you. He knows every hair on your head. And sometimes, of course, we think when we're in the dark, uh, God doesn't see us. And that's why so much sin takes place in the dark. Uh, people th- don't think they're being watched. And, of course, God sees everything that we do. He knows our very thoughts. And so we want to try to be pleasing to him fully that we have a walk, a way of life, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. We obey God by keeping the Ten Commandments. An attitude of obedience is pleasing to God. And, of course, the Fifth Commandment that we've already mentioned is one of those ways in which we obey God to honor our father and our mother. And as I mentioned in the sermon a few weeks ago, that even though, and as Mr. Pyle mentioned in the sermonette, even though our parents are deceased, we still strive to honor our parents by our behavior, by being a success in life, by bearing the fruits of God's Holy Spirit and pleasing God. And in so doing, we are pleasing, that we are honoring our parents. When they come up in the white throne judgment and they see us as kings and priests, we will have honored them through a successful life of a walk worthy of the Lord. Let's turn back to Proverbs, the second and third chapter, Proverbs second uh, chapter 2. And again, we honor our parents with an obedient attitude by following instructions. It's so difficult to do sometimes. But as I pointed out in the sermon a few weeks ago on the fifth commandment, We want to follow advice from our parents. Proverbs 2, My son, if you will receive my words and hide my commandments with you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. So he tells us that we need to listen. We need to keep in our hearts and minds the Father's commandments. Chapter 3, My son, forget not my law. But let your heart keep my commandments. Chapter 4. Hear you children the instruction of the Father, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine 
forsake you not my law. And, uh, of course, there's one other scripture here. We'll get back to that later. But do you take advice, children, from your parents and even as adults? I've asked my father when he was still alive, even as a professional engineer at the time, and asking my father for advice, asking my mother for advice. Uh, I may or may not have taken that advice as a member of God's church, where they were not, when there would become a conflict of doctrine and truth. But nonetheless, I listened to my parents' advice. While we're here in the book of uh, Proverbs, and we want to take instruction and advice from grandparents as well as parents, let's see what pleases God in a few of these Proverbs. Proverbs 11, 3 and verse 11. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father, the son, in whom he delights. God delights in children who can take correction. Proverbs 11 and verse 1. And this may seem a little unusual, but it's important to God. Proverbs 11, verse 1. A false balance or dishonest scales are an abomination to the eternal. But notice this, what pleases God. A just weight is his delight. Now why would a just weight be pleasing to God? Because it's a standard for accuracy. And if we, our words, are standards for truth and accuracy... It's symbolic of truth and right, rightness and accuracy. A just weight is his delight. Verse 20 of chapter 11. They that are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the eternal, but such as are blameless in their ways or upright in their way are his delight. Now, when he's saying we're blameless, that doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean you don't sin. It means that you have a continuous repentant attitude. And that when you sin, God forgives you because you immediately repent and you want to correct your wrong ways. You're blameless because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. But you're walking in a way that pleases God. It's an upright way. Proverbs 12 and verse 22. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims foolishness. Sorry, that's verse 23. Verse 22. Lying lips are abomination to the eternal, but they that deal truly are his delight. So those who have integrity, those who deal honestly, those who keep their word, those who don't defraud or deceive others. And, of course, Psalm 15 says, though who's going to be in your holy hill? Those who do not go back on their word. So God says he is delighted in individuals who deal truly, who deal truthfully. Proverbs 15 and verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the eternal, But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Again, God is pleased when you're praying for others. 
And when you're thinking of others, when you're concerned for others, he's, it delights him. So live with an attitude of obedience. Remember, it says in Deuteronomy 5.29, God says, Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments always. They didn't have the heart. But God is delighted in those who want to do his will, who want to do his way. You know the first great commandment and the second great commandment? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's in Mark, uh, the 12th chapter, verse 29, because it's heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, Mark has the four qualities of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So we need to love one another and love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. 1 Thessalonians 4. In uh, the NRSB Bible I have at home, it has as the heading of this, a life-pleasing God. 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. How you ought to walk and please God. Remember the Apostle Paul was saying in the first part that they did have a work of faith, chapter 1 and verse 3, a labor of love and patience of hope. Those are three major qualities we emphasized in the first sermon uh, back in January of this year, 2007, advancing to the kingdom. That was sermon number 413. So the Apostle Paul said that they had a work of faith, a labor of love and patience of hope, and that they would abound more and more, and they ought to walk and to please God, chapter 4. And verse 1. Let's get a different view of how God views your prayers. Revelation, the fifth chapter, Revelation 5. You may not think of it this way, but of course, chapter 4 gives us the picture of God's throne of the four living creatures, the rainbow, the thunders, the lightnings, the sea of glass, the four living creatures, the seven spirits of flame before God's throne. Uh, Christ at the right hand of God. And you think of here is God's throne. And, of course, the tabernacle in ancient Israel was a type of the throne in heaven. We had the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, and then there were the sacrifices, but there was also incense that was a part of the ritual service. And so he refers back to this, verse 8 of Revelation 5, And when he had taken the book, that is the Lamb, Christ, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors or scents, which are, get this, are the prayers of the saints. So here the prayers of the saints are right there symbolically as incense before God's throne. Turn to chapter 8 and verse 3. Chapter 8, did you ever think that your prayers would come up as incense? 
some of you have been to Hawaii, you know that some of the uh, tropical flowers are very, very pungent. And uh, I, uh, was a, my wife and I have only been uh, there once. It was a Feast of Tabernacles in 68. We uh, stopped in the airport once in Honolulu. But those flowers just put out a pungent smell. There's the, the ginger flower. And around the campus in Pasadena was the uh, undulatum, I think it was called, uh, that you walk by it and just the scent just blows you over. And what was that other flower we had in uh, gardenia? We had a gardenia plant outside of our bedroom window, window in Big Sandy. And, oh, the scent is just wonderful. If, if those wonderful scents can inspire us, how much more will it inspire God that your prayers come up as incense before his throne? Revelation 8, verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came up with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So just think about your prayers. They do have a relationship And they are meaningful to God in a very special way. And, of course, we think about the intercessory prayers, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4, where Paul says, I exhort you, therefore, to give intercession for kings and for those who are in authority. And it should be a part of our life that we're not just praying for ourselves, that we're praying for those who are in authority. And maybe we don't like President Bush but we still need to pray for President Bush and Vice President Cheney and Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. We need to pray for the, and for those around the world, brethren, you need to pray for the monarch, the king, the queen, the president, the prime minister of your country, of your nation. And here in in North Carolina, uh, we need to pray for Governor Mike Easley. And those here in Charlotte, we should be praying for our mayor, of the city, Pat McQuarrie. Because God says you should. And when you do follow instructions, it's pleasing to God. And so I hope that we can do that and realize that our prayers come up before God as incense and they please Him. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when we face trials, we need to have a positive and a tranquil mind But, you know, God rejoices in a positive attitude. Let's turn to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Let's understand there is a time to mourn, and there's a time to weep, but there's also a general basic attitude that your relationship with God the Father is so meaningful that you have that faith, you have that positive attitude. You do express a joy and a thankfulness for what God does. Psalm 100, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all you lands, or all the earth, or make a joyful shout unto the eternal, all your lands. And of course, we used to kid about Johnny one note in the song service. He can't follow a melody, but we said, okay, you know, at least you can make a joyful shout, a joyful noise unto the Lord. Now notice verse 2. 
serve the Lord with gladness. You know, not reluctantly. Come before His presence with singing. And so that's the attitude God is looking for, that we serve the Lord with gladness. Are you doing that? Let's turn to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter. Our attitudes can please God or they can displease God. Here is the blessing and cursing chapters. Deuteronomy 28, let's start with uh, verse 45. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and shall pursue you and overtake you till you be destroyed, because you listen not unto the voice of the Eternal your God to keep His commandments and His statutes which He commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and upon your seed forever. Now notice verse 47. Because you serve not the eternal your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. We just read in Psalm 1, serve the Lord with gladness. And now God's saying, look, you're going to be cursed because you've been abundantly blessed and you have not served me with gladness and joyfulness of heart. For the abundance of all things. This is very important, brethren. If we don't want the curses upon us, we want the blessings of God. So God looks on an attitude that says, Look, you want to serve me? Serve me not reluctantly, not with reservation, but serve me wholeheartedly. And serve me with gladness, cheerfulness, and joy of heart. Now, Psalm 40 gives us another perspective along that line because it's a messianic psalm. And it's one that I hope we individually can fulfill in following in Christ's footsteps because we are supposed to be transformed into the very image and mind and nature of Christ, as it tells us in Romans 8.29. Psalm 40. Again, in my old King James Bible here, it has a little symbol next to the verse. It's a circle with a little P inside it. And the uh, editors of this particular Bible meant that to be a prophetic psalm or a prophetic verse called the Messianic chain. And so this is referring to Jesus, the Messiah, verse 7 of Psalm 40. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. Verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now some of us, again, may be more reluctant. Do we have the joy, the enthusiasm, the delight to do God's will? Because we know it's a benefit, it's a blessing. When our former association tried to give us a guilt trip and say the Sabbath is a burden, we all knew otherwise. We knew that it was a delight to keep the Sabbath. It was freedom to rest and to rejoice in God's Sabbath. It was and is and should be a delight. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. And, of course, it tells us in Psalm 1, well, we might turn back there since we're so close. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. He's got you in all, all positions here, walking, standing, and sitting, watching your attitude here. He doesn't have any of those bad attitudes, but his delight is in the law of the eternal. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He's going to be fruitful like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So do you delight to do God's will as the Messiah did? Do you delight in God's law? Let's turn to Psalm uh, 37.4. You've heard me mention this many times because it's one of my favorite uh, verses. In fact, that's what Gramp uh, quoted here. Uh, verse, he quoted verse 3, I think it was. No, verse 5 in his letter to Cousin Ken. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself also in the eternal, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. I've heard many of our brethren say, well, no, God won't give you your desires of your heart. He only promises to give you your need. Of course, that's Philippians 4.19. It's a wonderful promise. My God shall provide all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And I've claimed that promise. And you know the classic story from Mr. Herbert Armstrong's autobiography when he needed 10 cents to buy a bottle of milk for the crying baby and claimed that promise. He didn't have any money. He said he prayed to God and asked him for 10 cents and he needed it immediately and claimed the promise of Philippians 4.19. And then immediately after that, uh, his daughter Beverly cried out, the rag and bottle man is coming down the street. They were, I guess in the modern vernacular, junk dealers who would buy uh, anything from your house. So he invited them in, and uh, Mr. Armstrong thought, well, maybe he'll buy something here that I can get 10 cents so we can go ahead and get the milk for the crying baby. And so the... Uh, Rag man came down the basement stairs, and where he lived was uh, a basement down in the cellar. And he saw a stack of magazines, and uh, the man said, I'll give you 10 cents for that stack of magazines. Mr. Armstrong said, well, really, shouldn't it be a dollar? And he said, no, I'll give you 10 cents. <laughs> and Mr. Armstrong realized that's that what he asked God for was 10 cents, and he shouldn't bargain after he made the request for 10 cents. And so God answered that prayer. He provided his need. He had that 10 cents and sent the uh, older sister to the store to get the milk for the crying baby. So God does promise to provide our every need. But here's a wonderful promise. But there is a condition to that promise, that he will give us the desires of your heart. And you've heard me tell the story of how I wanted to go to Jerusalem in 1967 after the Israelis took over the old city of Jerusalem in the war at that time. And uh, it was a desire of my heart. And I kept praying that God would let me go to Jerusalem. And after five years, ten years, fifteen years, I still hadn't gotten to Jerusalem. But in 1984, my wife and I were asked to be chaperones and the students at the City of David excavations in Jerusalem. So 17 years later, God gave me the desires of my heart. And there is a condition to it. Delight yourself in the eternal. Can you do that? Can you thank God for all the blessings he gives you? When you think about the 100 million Chinese who earn less than a dollar a day, you know, 100 million human beings, they're in China earning 
less than $1 a day. Are you blessed more than they, physically speaking? And then to think about the spiritual benefits God gives you, Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who saves your life from destruction and crowns you with many mercies, and who feeds your mouth with good things that you might be renewed, that your youth might be renewed as the eagles. I'm still claiming that promise that God will renew my youth. And I get every once in a while after exercising, uh, you know, running a mile three times a week, I feel a little tinge of renewing my youth, and I'm still praying that. But God gives us these benefits, and if we delight in him, we're thankful for all his spiritual and physical blessings, he will give us the desires of our heart. We may have to prepare for them. It may take years, but... It's a promise that God gives us. How else can we honor God? We delight in Him. He delights in us. We need to fulfill our mission in life. I read a recent article on careers and career changes in one's life. People, young people sometimes think, oh, what am I going to do for a career? And don't realize that over a lifetime you may have three or four different careers. I was a uh, civil engineer, a transportation engineer. I was a um, college administrator and teacher. And, of course, a broadcaster. I actually was a, had a radio program as a teenager and uh, when I was a junior in high school. I had a DJ show, and that's where I learned to do uh, news and advertisements and uh, enjoyed that uh, job tremendously. But God can give us many different jobs and careers if we're willing to adapt and continue to grow and learn and overcome. But the article suggested this. If you're considering a career change, you need to ask the question, what do you want on your tombstone? Because that's a telling question as to the meaning and purpose and internal commitment of your life. After everything is said and done, What has been the meaning of your life? What have you accomplished? What have you done in life? And you've heard me say many times or several times that I would want on my tombstone, here lies Richard F. Ames. He was an overcomer and turned many to righteousness. Now you might want something more, uh, quite a bit different than that. I think of Daniel 12 and verse 3, which says, They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. And you all are participating in turning many to righteousness. You know that. Through God's work and through getting the gospel out to the world, you are participating in turning many to righteousness. We have many more Bible study students coming online now that we've gone to the Bible study course online. And, of course, more open doors for the telecast. And then Numbers 1330, which I gave a sermon for the uh, spring festival. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses when the 12 spies came back and 10 of them gave a bad report and almost started a riot. Numbers 13. And Caleb stilled the people 
and said, Let us go up at once into the promised land and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. As you know, in Revelation 2 and 3, it isn't those who are designated as Sardis or Laodicean or Philadelphian or Thyatiran. It's not just that label. Jesus said to each one of those churches, He that overcomes will I grant whatever the particular blessing will be to those various churches or church attitudes. And so we all must be overcomers, and we've learned that lesson many times and rehearsed it during the days of unleavened bread. So we need to be focused. We need to have our hearts in the works. Turn to 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4. Many people in these days are distracted from their goal in life and for their mission. We need to be focused on God's work. We're praying for more laborers to go into the harvest, as it says in Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38. I hope you're praying for more co-workers, donors, members, ministers, laborers in the harvest. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 4. No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him. How are you going to please God, who has chosen him to be a soldier? And if a man also strive for masteries, yet he is not crowned, yet except he strive lawfully. You don't want to entangle yourself with the affairs of this life. That is, to be distracted from your mission. And your mission is to turn many to righteousness, to overcome, to help many into the kingdom, to be a light in this world, to be a servant, a bond slave of Christ. But as Dr. Meredith exhorted us last week, that we need to fight the good fight of faith because there are enemies out there, Satan and his demons, and the a world of uh, spiritual wickedness. And so we need to focus on the mission that we may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. God is creating a family. He's creating children with his nature and his character. That's you and that's me. We're being conformed to the very image of Christ. And I hope you know that scripture and believe it and embrace it. That's Romans 8, 29. They were to be conformed to the very image of Christ. That's his nature, his character, his mind, his spirit. And that we are like him and we reflect him and we radiate God's fruits of the spirit. And so we want to exemplify his way of life, which is wonderful, it's exciting, it's fulfilling. Because it's the way of love, the way of love towards God and the way of love toward neighbor. That way of life produces joy, it produces happiness, it produces satisfaction and completeness. So we look forward not to the false pleasures of this world, but to the joy of God's kingdom and his glorified family. It says in Psalm 1611, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Remember that verse. If you want pleasure, remember the spiritual pleasures that will be in God's kingdom. Let's turn to Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11. We need to be children in whom our Father is well pleased. 
We need to be faithful Christians in whom he delights. We read this before, but I think it's good to reemphasize. Proverbs 11 and verse 20. Those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the eternal, but the blameless in their ways are his delight. So how can we please our Father in heaven? By living the way Christ did. Matthew 4.4, 4, we live by every word. We can please God with our prayers, as we saw in 1 John 3, by intercessory prayer for praying for others and realizing that our prayers come up before God's throne like wonderful incense and that you please Him that way. You can please our Father in heaven by applying the key of maintaining a godly attitude, an attitude of humility, an attitude of willing to take correction, an attitude of faith and thanksgiving and giving and caring. Some of us have problems with our attitudes. How can we transform? How can we change from a reluctant attitude and a Laodicean attitude to one that is more zealous, one that's more enthusiastic, one that's more committed. Philippians 2 and verse 12 is an incredible verse. I hope you believe it, you apply it, and you trust God to work through you. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice verse 13. How do you do that? How do you work out your own salvation? Is that salvation by works? No, you have your part. The key is verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. You may not, see, you may not feel like doing what God wants you to, but ask Him for the right attitude. And it says he will work in you both to will, that is to give you the will, the attitude, the approach that you need to fulfill God's will. One final verse, Hebrews the 13th chapter, Hebrews 13. What a remarkable way of life God has given us. He's given us a plan of salvation. He's given us the power of his spirit. He's given us the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So how do we please God? He works in us what is pleasing to Him. So brethren, let's love God and our neighbors. Let's serve with gladness and cheerfulness of heart for the abundance of all things. Let's delight ourselves in Him, as it says in Psalm 37, 4. Let's delight in his way of life, delight in the Sabbath, as it tells us in Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. That's another story. He said, delight yourself in the Sabbath and 
Call it a delight, and I will cause you to rise upon the high places of the earth. I claim that promise, and right after that, God gave me a professional opportunity to visit one of the high places of the earth, Washington, D.C., to talk to a general up there that was in charge of the, the time called the Interstate Defense System of Highways. But let's delight in the Sabbath, delight in the mission that he's given us, and let's strive to please God in all that we do and think and say. And let's pray that God can say to us, his children, these are my sons and daughters in whom I am well pleased.